When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are companies for? Do banks and builders, car makers and supermarkets around the world exist solely to make a profit? Or do they have some higher calling, a responsibility to make the world a better place? A new faith in corporate purpose as a means to address social injustice, climate change and inequality is sweeping through the Anglo-Saxon business world. How much is this trend of woke capitalism going to change what it means to do business? You cannot run a sustainably healthy business in an unhealthy society. This is not about managing risk, it's really about managing business opportunity. Or could chief executives playing politics have dangerous consequences? My goal is to put us back on track, worrying about the return on investments, because I have 11 people in my family that are law enforcement, and we need to make sure that we can retire. You're listening to Money Talks from Economist Radio. I'm Tamsin Booth, and today we're weighing profit against higher corporate purpose. For three decades, the business orthodoxy has been in agreement with Milton Friedman, the Nobel Prize-winning economist. He wrote that there is one and only one social responsibility of business to use its resources and engage in activities designed to increase its profits so long as it stays within the rules of the game. But since the financial crisis, frustration has been growing that this game of capitalism isn't working as well as it should. Jobs are plentiful, but growth is sluggish, inequality is too high, and the planet is getting cooked. The discontent is bubbling up in political debates. Take Elizabeth Warren, one of the candidates for the Democratic nomination for U.S. president. My new bill, the Accountable Capitalism Act, will help level the playing field. It'll put trillions of dollars in the pockets of workers, and it won't cost the taxpayers a dime. But political systems in many places are gridlocked or unstable. Who, then, is going to ride to the rescue? For a growing number of people, the answer is big business. Ursula Burns, CEO of Vion, formerly of Xerox, had this to say to The Economist Asks podcast earlier this year. The fundamental question is, what is the role of a company? And one of the things I've always said, it's not the most popular thing, is that the, the normal um, statement about what the role of a company is, is to increase shareholder value. If that's the only role of a company, if that's the major role or the only role of a company, I don't want to run one. I don't want to do that. Because we have communities and we have employees, we also have shareholders. We have to serve all three of these groups, which are called stakeholders, and we have to do it in a way that on average over time, they all win. If we, can, if we don't do that... But can you have that? You I'm can. Just push you a little bit. And this once unpopular view has been gathering favour and momentum. 
Last month, more than 180 CEOs who together form an American organization, the Business Roundtable, including the chiefs of Walmart and J.P. Morgan Chase, issued a statement. It declared that their purpose was no longer to serve shareholders alone, but customers, staff, suppliers and communities too. Rick Haythornthwaite is the chairman of MasterCard, one of the signatories of the Business Roundtable statement. Hi, Rick. I'm, it's Tamsin. How are you? I'm well. Excellent. Thank you. Rick, what was your initial reaction to what is such an apparently radical statement? What, what did you think about its timing and how it was expressed? Well, I think one can only be encouraged by the fact that so many major chief executives around the world have, have declared that they believe that purpose and serving a, a broader stakeholder group um, has happened. Uh, I, th- I think that in, anything that comes out as a, a collective announcement is almost inevitably perceived as political. But I have to say that those chief executives that I talk to about this in the US are very committed to what they're they're doing. And of course, every company has a, a different take on what they see as purpose and how it's playing out. And when you say that the appearance is quite political, are you you suggesting that this is perhaps more a kind of rhetoric than a promise of concrete action? No, not at all. I don't think it was a statement of intent. I think it really was a a statement of what is happening. And and there is certainly businesses in the US and in the UK and elsewhere in the world are driving their businesses as purpose-led businesses for good reason. Dwelling on on the uh, the actual announcement is a bit of a red herring. I think the most important thing is our companies being run now in in the best interests of society, and that are they maintaining, or in many cases, rebuilding the trust that's necessary to run healthy businesses. Focusing on Mastercard, I don't know if the statement will make that much difference to the company, but how has Mastercard seen purpose? I know that you have an interest in in particular focus on financial inclusion, for example. Well, first of all, the statement made will make zero influence on uh, on Mastercard's direction because really for 10 years we have been very clear that first of all we want to deliver a, a world without cash but we want to do so in a, a way that we do well by doing good and that's not a trite statement. We and many companies recognize you, you cannot run a sustainably healthy business in an unhealthy society. Our focus on financial inclusion is an integral part of our business model. We work with uh, groups of uh, small and medium-sized enterprises, helping them move from a a cash economy to a world where they can actually transact digitally, which in turn allows them to obtain finance and start to move away from sort of a hand-to-mouth inventory approaches. This is not about managing risk. It's really about managing business opportunity. Do you think that the perception of MasterCard has changed over the decade because of these initiatives? I think that the perception before was we were a purely transactional company. We were we were the means by which goods and services could be bought. Uh, and and the, the dialogues that we would generally have with, with governments were really regulatory environments about the, the, the pricing of, of our services and of our customer services. It was a, a fairly uh, one-dimensional relationship. Uh, I think the recognition now with governments that actually we can be a, a force for good and, and we're, we're not just doing this as a defensive move, but because we truly believe in it, naturally changes the nature of the relationship. Examples of companies taking even more active positions have followed hard on the heels of the August statement. 
On September 3rd, Walmart announced it won't sell handguns or ammunition that can be used in military-style weapons. And last week, the heads of 145 companies, including Uber and Twitter, wrote to senators demanding stronger gun control laws and labelling gun violence in America a public health crisis. These high-profile examples have been widely quoted as evidence of serious intention behind the rhetoric. But how deep does this shift really go? On the face of it, that looks like it changes things rather dramatically. But I think in most cases, the Business Roundtable statement will likely prove to be no more than an innocuous platitude. It may make Stephen Bainbridge is a professor of corporate and business law at the University of California, Los Angeles. He told me he thinks purpose is flavor of the month. Now, now of course, neither Friedman nor the Business Roundtable thought that anything goes. They both recognize that directors have to obey the law, engage in open competition, uh, avoid deception and fraud, and so on. In other words, neither Friedman nor the Business Roundtable's old statements said that you should pursue shareholder value through antisocial behavior. The question, though, is whether directors and officers should go beyond that to uh, pursue supposedly pro-social goals uh, proactively. I asked him why he thinks the Business Roundtable changed its mind. There are some CEOs now who basically think of themselves as social justice warriors. Mark Benioff of Salesforce.com, for example, has been active in trying to promote social activism among American chief executives. But I also think that there are other CEOs who are more, you know, sort of traditional business Main Street Republicans who are not themselves progressives or social justice warriors, but are responding to perceived consumer and labor demand. Um, There's a a fair bit of data that, at least at present, millennials uh, apparently prefer to work for and purchase from companies that are perceived as being socially and environmentally responsible. And that's created a widely shared view in the business community that in order to attract millennial and Generation Z workers and customers, they have to project an image as social justice activists. Uh, Nike's embrace of Colin Kaepernick, I think is the most obvious example of this. If people say your dreams are crazy, if they laugh at what you think you can do, good. Stay that way. Because what non-believers fail to understand is that calling a dream crazy is not an insult. It's a compliment. But even heartland companies such as Walmart are are increasingly embracing socially progressive stances, uh, despite the risk of alienating their current customer base. But I think also the other possibility, and, and what may well explain the timing of this statement, is the upcoming U.S. presidential uh, election next year. Uh, and I think at least some of the BRT members are probably trying to head off regulation by progressive politicians. You take, for example, Elizabeth Warren, who's running for uh, president for the Democratic nomination for president. The biggest corporations in America would need to make new legally binding commitments that take into account what's good for their workers and not just what's good for their shareholders. And with the mainstream of the Democratic Party moving in her direction uh, on these issues, uh, the BRT's members may have hoped that a, a sort of voluntary embrace of corporate social responsibility platitudes 
would help them fend off a, uh, a more intrusive regulation uh, in the event of a Democratic presidential victory uh, in 2020. But whether stakeholder capitalism is politically motivated or not, it is making its presence felt now. So who benefits? And does anybody lose? On Monday, The Economist's daily podcast, The Intelligence, looked at how oil markets are responding to the recent attacks on Saudi Arabian oil infrastructure. What could this mean for the planned IPO of Aramco, the state oil giant? Subscribe and listen to The Intelligence wherever you listen to podcasts. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As the idea that companies can do well by doing good grows in popularity, we have to ask who loses? Is it possible that everybody wins? What happens when doing good does badly and purpose and profit come into conflict? I'm a simple man and I'm not an expert in investing, but I'm good with my skill set. And part of that is being able to sift through the uh, BS. My name is Jason Perez. I am a police sergeant in uh, Corona, California, which is in Southern California. Last year, I ran and was elected to the CalPERS Board of Administration. CalPERS is one of the world's biggest pension funds. California could no longer afford wage increases for police and other public servants, partly because CalPERS was underfunded. It had been an early standard bearer for investing along environmental, social and governance principles, known as ESG investing. So last year, Jason Perez decided something had to be done. There's a ton of reasons why CalPERS is un- underfunded. Um, and the, the ESG stuff, specifically the, uh, the social portion of that, has cost the fund a lot of money. So when, when we divested from tobacco way back in the day, it cost, we had our uh, independent board consultants, Wilshire, do a, uh, an analysis and they say that it cost us $3.9 billion, which is over 1% of our fund. That's, that's a lot of money. And that was when they, uh, the divestment from tobacco. The other divestments, uh, firearms, that's only roughly $11 million. So in the grand scheme of things, most of the divestments really don't move the needle. But tobacco moves the needle. That's a lot of money. So my goal is to put us back on track, worrying about the return on investments. Because I have 11 people in my family that are law enforcement. My mom, my dad, my brothers, my sister. I mean, 11 people, a lot of people in my family that are cops. And we need to make sure that we can retire. He is perplexed and concerned by the shifting of priorities. You're asking me to insert logic uh, where where I don't see any existing. It's more of an emotional uh, response as far as what they want to invest in, how they want to change the world. Uh, I do struggle. I'll tell you up front, I, will, I do struggle with some things as far as investments concerned. 
some things I don't like, but I don't have to like it. That's my, I'm, when I'm a dis- making a decision on the board, I make it solely on whether or not it's going to make the returns that we need. It has nothing to do with the way I feel about abortion or the way I feel about firearms or tobacco. We're simply a retirement fund. Um, when it, If you boil everything down, we're simply a retirement fund. And that's not a place that we need to make changes to our world. Now, if, now, if a, a personal investor wants to go and, and invest only in ESG stocks, then, you know, good for them. Uh, and maybe I would have less heartburn with it if we were funded adequately. But, you know, hovering, hovering at 70% is not adequate enough. I put this objection, the idea that profit and social purpose could be in direct conflict, to Rick Haythornthwaite at MasterCard. You know, there's a tendency to think that the business has shifted from shareholder and profitability through to purpose. No, these, this is a false distinction. You know, profitability is still not just a desirable outcome, but the necessary outcome for a, a health of an enterprise. Purpose is simply the overarching means by which in this, this new context, sustainable profit gets delivered. What are the limits on corporate purpose, do you think? I mean, I know that MasterCard and your CEO, AJ Banger, have come under pressure, for instance, to stop people using the network to purchase guns or other perceived undesirable goods. I think that is a, a separate issue, and uh, which is really, it's, it's not a purpose issue. It's, it's a question of how should a, a company operate within any given society? And one has to draw clear boundaries as to what we regard as the role of the company and the, the role of regulators and legislators. You know, we're not there to, to arbitrate as to what is good and what is not good in society. That's what lawmakers are about. And so we take the very clear view that we, we will operate within the bounds of, of, of legal transactions. If someone is legally transacting, then we have a, a duty to support them. And that is a slightly different approach, for instance, from that of um, firms such as PayPal, where they've decided to block what they have decided are hate groups, sort of, sort of white nationalist hate groups. That, that is a, a different policy. Am I, am I correct in thinking that? You have to ask uh, PayPal about that. I mean, ours is very clear. So if purpose exists, what it actually means varies widely from company to company. Over time, purpose could veer around inside the same company, depending on what particular CEOs care about. So does stakeholder capitalism risk giving too much power to already powerful bosses and boards? Does serving many masters mean serving none? Stephen Bainbridge of UCLA offered an example. Suppose Acme's board of directors is considering closing an obsolete plant. The boards advise that closing the plant will cost many longtime workers their job, be devastating for the local community. On the other hand, they're going to build a new plant, perhaps in a different country, perhaps in a different state. And the board's advisors confirm that uh, closing the existing plant will benefit Acme shareholders, new employees hired to work at a more modern plant, and the local communities around the more modern plant. You raise the possibility that that the board would use that discretion in its own self-interest. And so the board might, for example, decide, well, it's in our interest, for whatever reason, to keep the existing plant open. 
Uh, and so we will justify that on grounds that it benefits our stakeholders, even though it is not good for our shareholders. Conversely, if the board thought, well, opening the new plants in our interest, they'll justify it by pointing to the shareholders' interest. And so there is always a concern that allowing the board to take into account these sort of stakeholder interests will make it more difficult to hold the board accountable. With that in mind, what comes next? If this is a serious shift, do profits and investments then go down? And if stakeholder capitalism is to work over time, does it need to be supported by law? 90%, 95 99% of the time, the saying, the rising tide lifts all boats is true. And and what is doing good uh, will, in fact, do well for the entire company and all of its stakeholders, shareholders, employees, etc., But there are times, they're relatively rare, but there are times when a business faces a zero-sum decision, and because of the accountability issues that we discussed earlier, I think it's necessary that there be a clear rule in those cases that you favor shareholder interests. You have to understand that the business roundtable statement does not change the law. The Delaware Chancery Court, which is the United States' leading business law court, has said that corporate directors and executives have a fiduciary duty to maximize the value of the corporation for the benefit of its shareholders. And it doesn't change the electorate. Directors are still going to be elected by the shareholders. And those shareholders are going to continue to expect the directors that they and they alone elect to put shareholder value first. And nothing about the business roundtable statement changes either of those dynamics which is why I think that when these executives are faced with, you know, a hard decision that requires them to say, all right, we have to make trade-offs between the shareholders and the stakeholders, that they're still going to come down on the side of the shareholders, despite the rhetoric of this statement. But perhaps there is a middle way. In an influential 2017 paper, economists Oliver Hart and Luigi Zingales argued that Friedman's championing of shareholder primacy was right, but that he was too focused on making money. They argue that companies should maximise not shareholder value, but a broader definition that they called shareholder welfare. I asked Luigi Zingales what this means. He's a professor of finance at the Chicago Booth School and co-hosts the podcast Capitalism. Welfare is simply means uh, utility of the various people. And we know that uh, we derive utility from money, but not only from money. I might care about living in a cleaner environment or I might care about uh, the employees not uh, dying on the workplace or the employee being uh, fairly treated. So the problem, of course, is that this is a much more messy world because people have different utilities and there are some people who care deeply about the environment and uh, some others who don't give a damn. And so how would companies decide The simple answer is they should ask the shareholders because uh, we are looking at a situation where this decision will cost shareholders some money. And so then we have this new statement from the Business Roundtable of American CEOs, which elevates stakeholders and de-emphasizes the importance of shareholders. So it goes kind of in a different direction from what you've been advocating. It's more that the chief executive and the board um, get to 
think about stakeholders? What what do you make of the shift in direction? So I'm I'm a bit concerned because uh, if uh, the statement is tantamount to say that we should care about customers and employees, I think that uh, even Milton Friedman would be totally in favor of that. So to some extent, if they are saying this, they are stating the obvious. On the other hand, if they are saying, look, now we want to change our policy so that uh, we don't maximize profits, but we give some of these profits away to some other constituencies, then this is tantamount to taxation without representation. I am not against taxation, uh, but I am against taxation without representation. So why should a CEO choose where to donate uh, money, whether this is a charity or the employees, this is a choice that uh, he can certainly do with his or own money. But if he does it with the company money, should uh, receive the, a mandate from the shareholders who are the one that ultimately pay for it. So, so companies can have social purposes, but owners must provide them, not managers. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. For, for individual shareholders to call the shots more at companies, in, including on more kind of ethical and moral issues. Is it, is it really realistic to have, as, as we've put it, um, grannies from Grand Rapids and cowboys from Colorado kind of phoning in or, you know, texting in or whatever it is and telling companies how to act on social issues? Is it practical and, ha- and is technology going to, going to make it happen? Actually, it's relatively easy to do through mutual funds. I don't expect uh, most grannies to vote directly. But they can vote by choosing mutual funds that uh, declare a certain policy. A little bit like uh, you vote mostly about an ideology. Most people don't know uh, so well their representative. They vote based on uh, an ideology. And if the mutual funds say, I am going to vote in favor of most environmental uh, programs as long as they don't cost more than X, you can choose with your feet and you can buy index fund that is uh, pro-environment or index fund that is uh, just about profits. I guess it's just kind of ESG funds at the moment, right? They're not sort of, they're not so specific at this point, but do, do you expect single issue no, no, but funds the, the to ESG emerge? funds by and large work through exclusion. And this is something that I'm very against because... Uh, in the case of the environment, of the energy, it's not that we don't want any oil to be extracted or we don't want any energy to be produced. In fact, we want the opposite. We want a lot of energy to be produced, but in the most uh, environmental-friendly way. So it's not an issue of divesting from oil companies because divesting at best achieves nothing because other investors buy it and uh, nothing happens. I think that companies should invest and engage and vote. And at the moment, mutual funds have not uh, really focused on this issue, but uh, there is some work done in academia trying to outline how to identify the ideology of a mutual fund. And I think as this work will become better known, people will start choosing their mutual fund based on the ideology. In the same way in which they choose their party based on the ideology, they would choose also their mutual fund based on the ideology. Professor Zingales, thank you. My pleasure. 
Such truly democratic shareholder capitalism is a way off yet, but companies are not static beings. They have evolved continually alongside society. As companies reset and refine their purposes in the future, they will need to keep delivering for the global savings system, meaning for people like Jason Perez. In the meantime, it is clear that empowering big bosses is not a substitute for effective government when it comes to tackling subjects such as the climate emergency or inequality. The macro picture is that the Western world needs innovation, competition, widely spread share ownership and diverse firms that adapt fast to society's needs. That is the most enlightened kind of capitalism. Thank you for listening to Money Talks. To read more about the evolution of the company and its pursuit of purpose, subscribe. Go to economist.com slash radio offer to get your first 12 issues for $12 or £12. I'm Tamsin Booth, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.